0: Welcome to The Heavenly Banquet with Charlotte and Chad. Today we're going to talk about biblical interpretation. Now the scriptures have to be interpreted for a number of reasons that we'll probably get into as we go along. Um, But the church has had several methods throughout the traditions that they have used. So we'll talk about that a little bit. Mm -hmm. And maybe Maybe one place to start out is with a fella named Marcion. Yeah. I don't know. I'm thinking, is he second century Charlotte? I I can't remember. Yes. So Marcion decided that the God as represented in the Old Testament and God as represented in the New Testament are so radically different that he just ditched the Old Testament altogether. And, well, um, I mean, we wh- laugh.
1: I'll interrupt. I mean, we laugh at that, but I mean, that's a really simple observation that we kind of all have to get around, right? I mean, just the presentation of God in these two works can be different. Just on the outset strikes one as this kind of Old Testament Hebrew Bible vengeance, uh, wrathful being. And then, you know, the New Testament is love, 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 love. And right. so. We have to find a way to reconcile those things, but it—I mean—it does just on the surface look like nonsense or two different, two different, so radically different depictions, perhaps that perhaps. they can't be reconciled. They—they they must be talking about two different things. So,
0: right,
1: not to sympathize with Marcion, but I mean, this is a, a problem that persists. I think. So, yeah. so yeah, so go. So, how does he? He fixes this in the most eloquent way,
0: <laughs> which is? Ditching the Old Testament. And, and yeah. well, and let me back up. So originally, you know, the earliest Christians, all they had was the Hebrew scriptures. And then, you, mm-hmm. you know, you have these letters from Paul and other, um, and then eventually the gospels. So by the time Marcion comes along, there are a number of books, gospels, letters floating around that have already kind of become accepted in Christian communities. Uh, There's no New Testament canon at this point. Marcion Mm -hmm. really starts the whole idea of developing a a Marcion, developing a New Testament canon, first of all, by ditching the Old Testament. And secondly, he only accepts, I think, a part of Luke and a majority of Paul's letters. And he says, that's the scriptures. This is the true God. Right. Um. He believed the Old Testament God was a a, a creator God, but not the ultimate God. If, and I won't go into his theology on that. <clears throat> but that's how he reconciles what he seems to be irreconcilable differences between Old Testament and New Testament. He just cuts it out, and that others react to that by saying, "Wait, you can't do that," you know. Yeah,
1: so he precipitates this crisis right right of going okay well we have to define borders cuz we're not going to do that yeah and he's not just dealing as you mentioned or alludes to here with the discrepancies between old and new testaments but then we have four gospel accounts that don't accord with each other too right so yeah. he's like yeah okay luke is pretty good i think maybe there's a portion of mark that sounds all right you know something like this
0: matthew's no good keep- <laughs>
1: It, John is ridiculous, you know, so we'll just we're just going to, you know, uh, here again, instead of trying to reconcile these things, uh, why don't why don't we just have take one of them? This is this looks like the best one and move on, which right. I mean, again, eloquent approach. It's a great way to fix all of these um, problems or uh, opportunities within the text. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, right. So now once the church has decided, no, we're keeping all of this stuff, is the revelation of Christ, right? So we're all all the gospel accounts, we want all those. Um, we're keeping this uh, larger body of work as far as the letters are concerned. Uh, revelation, uh, actually remaining in question in some yeah. qu- Christian communities, right? But okay. Uh, and then saying the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, we're definitely going to keep that, you know, for several reasons. But, I mean, Jesus directly quotes it. Uh, um, There are allusions to it throughout the New Testament as well through those, uh, in those stories. So uh, they don't make sense with one one without the other. They're definitely connected. And that means the work is on on us to understand what, what the relationship is and to make sense of those things. Um, so now the, the church is in a position of trying to synthesize uh, these works um, one way or another. And so we're having models of interpretation then. So these historical models we'll talk about first and then some other ways that um, Chad tools that Chad and I use, or ways that we approach Scripture, um, and and other tools that the folks have on hand more commonly uh, now, I'd say. So, um, you ready to jump in? Anything else that. we gotta mention in here? All right. Um, so, in these sort of historical categories, I mean, let's let's get right into it. Literal, just the plain meaning of the text. Uh, this is a primacy, primary meaning of the text, you know, even for if you're doing allegorical interpretations, no matter how far outside of what you're looking at, you got to know this first, right? Uh, you can't do allegory without understanding one end of the allegory, right? <laughs> um, so you've got to have some sense of of what that means. Um, and even those, those of us, you know, who are using sort of... Uh, historical critical method, etc. that that's really after the literal meaning of the text is some, you know, uh, what was the author's intention? What is actually just going on here? How do we understand? How do we understand that? Um, This view is closely associated, of course, with the view of scripture as being inerrant, right? So it's just the plain meaning. Uh, So not just primacy, but the soul uh, means of interpreting the text as being literal. Um, in this scheme, I'm gonna as we go through these historical models, talk about what how Jerusalem would be representative represented in each. Um, mm-hmm. So here, when Jerusalem is mentioned, we're talking about the historical city of Jerusalem, um, the literal in, Jerusalem, yeah, in Israel, Palestine, a, a unique uh, place. Um, on the map and, and its place within history, there. Um, so you know, I mean, a benefit. There's a way in which I envy, you know, some some of our folks who cling to just the literal interpretation because I mean, it's just direct, it's actionable, right? Um, and the places where where that is most striking you know, in the commands of Jesus and things like the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, um, the commandments to love one another, things like that. Right. uh, Then great. Uh, And then other times, though, it's nonsense. It's just nonsense. I mean, there are historical inaccuracies within Scripture. There are grammatical errors within Scripture. Uh, They're places where the text doesn't agree with itself, right? So, I mean, not just competing gospel accounts, but um, we have competing accounts of the same narrative in the Hebrew Bible as well when we're dealing with the histories there. Uh, And so those things either have to be kind of swallowed whole, uh, you know, or we have to deal with them in some way using some other tool, um, which is where, uh, you know, our other historical uh, figures within Christianity are saying that where the literal meaning uh, has some kind of opposition, then that's drawing you in to a deeper meaning within the text, is trying to bring you uh, to a spiritual or moral meaning, uh, is is calling you to look deeper and and to wrestle with the text there rather than just kind of shrug your shoulders and go, well, they're both right in some way, because they have to be, you know, it challenges me. So that's the end of that.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's why we see harmonies of the four Gospels very early on, because they're Mm -hmm. trying to reconcile some of these differences. Um, I mean, I'll just throw in my two cents about inerrant and those who want to say that You know, it all must be read literally. I don't even think that's possible. Uh, Certainly, there's some areas I don't think a literal reading works. The the one that comes to mind is the first day of creation where the light is separated from the darkness, and yet there are no luminaries yet. There's no sun, moon, or stars. There's Mm -hmm. nothing that gives light in our literal Mm -hmm. experience. And, you know, uh, folks will say, well, that's the separation of the good angels and bad angels. Okay, that's fine. But obviously you're dealing in metaphor.
1: Right? Yeah. And,
0: and, of course, that first couple chapters of Genesis, the literalists really want to take all that literally. But I, I, I don't think it's possible in some instances.
1: Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, why are there two different creation accounts right there if we're looking at? I mean, you know, right, Genesis 1 and 2, what what happened, was there a do-over? Or how, you know, are both of yeah. those stories true? Um, yeah, and I think of people who claim to follow literal meaning will admit that they understand phrases like the hand of God as being a literary device. They'll admit that, or they generally understand that the right hand of God is in a literal place, that heaven isn't on the sky in a, a cloud world above us. Mm-hmm. Um so you know why admit that those things are poetry or a figure of speech and not other things I mean specifically like the whole books of poetry that we have within the Bible oh, wow.
2: um
1: you know both in the psalms the song of solomon uh the prophetic works mm-hmm. uh the uh the songs that people sing within the Bible those aren't that that would be weird uh, <laughs> for people to just break out into song and be like, oh, these are clearly literal. You don't normally sing recipes or literal instruction. I don't know. Um, so it just seems it seems a little deranged to me to assume that there is a pure literal mean, reading of all of Scripture when yeah. uh, even those folks. Will admit that there are places that it's not that uh, where God is um, depicted anthropomorphically that that's not true, you know. So, what about what about all these other all these other places?
0: And, well? and it it gives a really funky way of viewing the scriptures because it treats it like a house of cards. So if you don't mm-hmm. treat one thing literally, the whole thing falls apart, and that's just a that's just. I don't think that's a, a great way to approach the scriptures. Can we talk about author intent a little bit? Yeah. So I, I do think most literalists are going to say what we're looking for is the author's intent. I know Augustine talks about this in on Christian doctrine. And, you know, he does say, you know, we kind of look for the author's intent, but he admits that you can't know the author's intent (laughs)
2: right right
0: but and and this is not a just a problem with inerrantism I i think you might disagree with me on this i think it's also a problem with strictly historical critical approaches as well sure because who is the author of the scriptures i mean obviously it's numerous people over uh, a large span of time, but if these are inspired, then <clears throat> the divine intent of what the scriptures communicate to us might transcend the particular author's intent. Does that make sense
1: right oh yeah no i I think you're pointing at something else that I have is a real issue with this for me, which is these literal interpretations also end up treating scripture as a sort of dead document, right, right so right, yeah. uh that that's if that's the only thing that matters then uh how's it speaking to us across the centuries and not well not only across the centuries across cultures right i mean these are scriptures that are also written to particular people in a very particular place at a very particular time uh it has to have some meaning for me as well you know and it has to have uh you know living in a first world western nation it has to have some meaning for uh, people in sub-Sahara Africa, it has to have some meaning for, you know, people in Southeast Asia, et cetera. Uh, so, there, it, ha- it has to speak across all these things. So, I think uh, that work of the Holy Spirit in interpreting Scripture, you know, all that's right. a, one of those hallmarks of, of our tradition, of most Christian traditions, but of saying, you know, it, it's not just that scripture is inspired in and of itself but the reading of scripture is inspired in another way too that to draw us into it into uh various meanings
2: um, yeah, that can still if...
1: speak to us today and the literal meaning often can't it has you know i don't right. i don't get paid in denarii <laughs>
0: And you know, if I use a Hebrew text and say this points to Christ, I'm not making a historical critical faux pas. That's how we use this scripture.
2: Right. Right.
0: As Christians,
2: as followers of Christ. Anyway. So so yeah, the literal it's needed, but it it can't be the whole thing.
1: Yeah. And I guess just to reemphasize, because people the the literal folks love to come at we kind of folks about this wait, the literal folks love to come at us kind of folks um you know, on this point of saying that when if we don't embrace everything literally, then we're just kind of throwing stuff in the trash,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: there's plenty of it that we take literally mm-hmm. um, and sure. take seriously and uh and like we said, we have to understand the literal meaning to get anywhere else, but um there's there's just a whole host of plain meaning, plain instruction uh, from Jesus and from others that i'm I might argue we we tend to take more literally than the literalist yeah. um, or put port- more yeah. emphasis on um, okay, so our second reading we're moving into is um uh, typically described as the allegorical. So looking at the spiritual meaning of the text, so going one level deeper maybe, but um, how does the text speak to faith? It's sought in every text, um, but insisted upon where the plain meaning is somehow unacceptable, where there's something problematic about that. So again, an understanding that where there's conflicts or trouble with the plain meaning, that doesn't mean that we throw the text out. It means we're looking for something else within it in these traditions. Um so here things like the Song of Songs, right? Is this mm-hmm. long extended poem love song in the middle of the Bible. Um, this it, with explicit sexual content and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, then we end up Interpreting that as an allegory, let's say, of between Christ and the church, something right. like that. Yeah. Or we look at uh, you know, Joshua and these depictions of actual warfare, uh, the depictions of uh, commandments of um, genocide in right. the uh, Hebrew Bible, um, then of talking about spiritual battles, right. about spiritual warfares, about uh, what, what's happening within us. Um, so these interpretations are also going to include what we call the typological um, which you see a lot in the historical tradition where we're looking at Old Testament, Hebrew Bible, people, places, and events as prefiguring uh New Testament events, Christ in particular. so, and Paul does this explicitly. Mm-hmm in Romans, you're talking about Adam as a type of Christ, uh-huh. right? So uh, Christ is the new Adam, um, these things. Uh, we have, you know, so now we're into this language of looking at you know, Noah's Ark as a type of the church, uh-huh. um, flood as a type of baptism, uh, Jonah in the whale as Christ in the tomb, uh, and the way that the fourth gospel, John, uses the Passover narrative as a figure of Christ's suffering death and resurrection as that being sort of the whole background uh, for that. Um, he's Christ as well, Even we have this language about Christ as the lamb that is slain mm-hmm. to take away the sins of the world. That's a direct reference, right. Um, to Passover story. that doesn't m- sort of make sense on its own. Yeah. Um, so here uh, when we would be talking, referencing Jerusalem, Again, that's sort of our touchstone. Uh, Jerusalem would normally, in these kinds of interpretations, uh, stand for the Church of Christ.
0: Okay.
1: Here.
2: Yeah. Here. Jesus uses allegorical interpretation.
1: Yeah. Where?
0: (laughs) Uh, What is it? John three, when he says, "Just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so too the Son of Man." I mean, that's out. That's allegorical, and I think that's part of what. Encouraged the early church. Um, But the the other one I think about is what is it? Psalm 176 or whatever. It ends with, May their little ones' heads be dashed against the stone.
1: Yeah. And then we sing the hallelujah chorus. (laughs)
0: That's true. But, you know, very early on, they're interpreting that not as dashing our enemies' babies' heads against a stone, but of Mm -hmm. combating, you know, spiritual. Spiritual warfare, as you've mentioned, so I mean, <clears throat> why do you think the church went with allegorical, especially in some schools? why do you think they emphasized it so much with the Old Testament besides prefiguring christ
1: well i think I think these specific things we're looking at uh you know seem to clash with some of the teachings of christ you know specifically around Mm nonviolence, uh around love around peace so you know i mean you have all these jesus telling them to (laughs) to not fight off the centurions and things like this and then we have you know joshua go in and take the land and wipe everybody out so what everybody what are we doing there so
2: yeah
1: um and i think there might you know I kind of suspect there's also some embarrassment uh-huh. within the tradition too of of saying' no, that's not that's not what happened. that's not what we did. That's not what that means. um right We don't need all of that on us um sort of thing um, to need to look at that in a different in a different way, yeah it's good, but again, also just trying to get to a deeper meaning within the text like how do i use it what does then if i'm just looking at let's say the plain meaning of the historical battles
2: mm-hmm. let's
1: say in the hebrew bible what does that have to do with me
2: right, right. yeah you
1: know, that's even if it's a history lesson it's not you know necessarily my history uh, it's not something i what am i supposed to learn from it right because i also can't also know i'm not supposed to fight battles that way uh if I have to fight somebody I'm not gonna go look for some ram's horns.
0: Um there yeah, are the other Christians who are so, mostly pacifist.
1: Yeah so I think it's also like okay so what is instructive here to me? I'm I'm so there's an assertion here that maybe sometimes gets overlooked. I think particularly from the literalists the assertion within this is that all scripture is meaningful and all scripture can be used mm-hmm. uh towards salvation towards pointing toward Christ. So or Christ, yeah. How do we how do we do that um when we're looking at some of these texts that don't seem on the face, on the uh literal face to have anything to do with me or Christ or um this world in which I live. So um how do I find meaning? Some people are gonna say, Well, you're just creating meaning, but what is how do I find meaning? So then I'm gonna go to spiritual battles, um, my you know, uh, internal state, things like this, uh,
2: to
0: deal with
1: that.
0: It's a way of treating the scriptures in a more robust, richer way. You don't have just a flat one meaning, but you have layers mm-hmm. of meaning, and it yeah. allows for the possibility of the Holy Spirit to work through text, you know, through these layers of meaning. I just think it's a much richer. Now, I will say, because I'm fairly familiar with some of these older interpretations, some of them go off the rails. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> I mean, they sure the, the cr- critique that you know you can just put any mean they you know there were instances that you read their allegorical interpretation and think, my goodness, how did you get there? But all they you know what they care about is bringing us closer to Christ, and and, and I think to so some of them they felt like whatever it takes, that's that's fine, and we can talk about Augustine and the rule of love, but yeah there yeah, so
1: there are there <clears throat> are on. definite boundaries that end up being put in, in place here to curb some of that it doesn't <laughs> not necessarily uh, effective boundaries in all case specifically when we you know move toward medieval times and, and mysticism i'd say as well um but uh, but yeah so we'll we'll get into that that there uh there are ways in which the tradition has always also said you can't just call anything anything. Uh-huh. Um, you can't just make any old allegory. There's some things that work and some things that don't. And here's, um, there's prescriptions for that as well. So let's get into that in a moment, if we could.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Um, so then we have uh, moral, moral interpretations. So this is looking, how do I act? What do I do? How do I live these scriptures in my life? Um, so it's seeking ethical lessons, um, even when none seem apparent. So they it would use allegory, uh-huh. would use allegory, but it's a shift toward what does it mean to me? What does it mean to my life in this world? So here we're looking at Jerusalem uh, as a symbol, an allegory of the human soul okay. of. Of the way that we experience it, so all of the stories about you know Jerusalem being besieged, um, yeah. Jerusalem in captivity. That we're talking about the soul when we're looking at um, Lamentations, how lonely sits the city. Um, that would be about the human soul there. Um, but trying to make sense again uh, in a real, more specific way about how do I how do I live these scriptures? How does it inform? the Christian
0: life yeah. here. Yeah, and you're saying it's not just obvious ones like love your neighbor, but it's...
1: Yeah, so specifically looking for those ethical lessons in places where they don't um, seem apparent.
0: Would that be like the parables, Jesus' parables? Would those be moral interpretations? Is that generally how we approach those? or Because, you know, uh-huh. he... Jesus doesn't give a lot of interpretations of his parables. He only does it once or twice, right? Yeah. But we generally use them. Well, I guess it depends on the parable. I'm just trying to think of instances. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think interpretations of the parables that would speak directly to how we live, Mm -hmm. yes, rather than interpretations that are going to talk about Scripture, rather than interpretations that are going to talk of the parables that are going to talk about the church or that are going to talk about the relationship of the church and God. um, But actually how I ethically live within the world um, are going to fit under this.
0: Um, The Good Samaritan would be an instance.
1: Yeah. If we're looking at an interpretation of that, that's saying that I should be acting like the Good Samaritan. Right. And, and taking direct action uh, to help, those in need, right? Um, but of course, you know we know historically that there are interpretations of that that are about um, Christ and purity codes and um, the relationship of the church with other cultures. I mean, there are definitely interpretations of that that fall outside of this moral and ethical category. Um, so now we have anagogical say it with me chad anagogical
0: anagogical
1: that's so good um so this is related to the others but we're always pointing here to the life to come to eschatology to heaven to hell to end things um and so in its future oriented oriented toward prophecy so this is also going to be looking at texts as kind of Would look, for instance, at Revelation as only future, as only eschatology, as only talking about heaven or the world to come, Uh right? As only speaking about a kind of political fortune-telling, let's say, where we're always looking out for um, beasts from the sea, beasts from the land, and this sort of thing, Um, rather than... Another way, of course, of interpreting Revelation is speaking about the world as it is, mm-hmm. right? About the political, um, social, economic turmoil that we can see all around us all of the time, right? As revealing that. And it's also going to look at things like expressions that we wholly latched onto, really, historically, but uh, crossing the Jordan into Canaan land, right? Then is speaking about. How we say people died and went to heaven. Mm-hmm. Right? And so here Jerusalem is going to be the heavenly city. The world to come is okay. the new world, is the new uh city coming down. Um and has lost, you know, its place within within history then. Is that okay? It's fine with me. <laughs>
2: oh, fine with me.
0: Well, I think you can think of old testament prophets. You know, you can take several passages. One person might interpret it as a critique of social situations. Another right. person would take it more anagogically. Uh, and, of course, you could do both, I suppose. I mean, I think one thing, just talk going through this, is, again, how... Scripture is multivalent, right? There are layers yeah. of truth. You can you can approach a passage in more than one way, which pushes back against this idea that there's only one interpretation of any given text. Right. Right. Which is annoying.
1: Yeah. So, so when I say, like, this is one way to interpret Revelation and there's others, uh, that in my mind, those don't conflict mm-hmm. in any way. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and that's... As we say, like, why we do the work of interpretation and why we continue to come back to these texts, right? So, when Revelation is describing, you know, these marketplaces where some are, where there's this uh, great trade inequality and et cetera, um, then I'm not like, oh, maybe one day something like that will happen. (laughs) Like, I can see that. And then also, there will be some kind of tipping point, right? where something else will have to be brought about because of that. So those two things can be true. There Jeff Bezos can exist now <laughs> as a symbol and sign of complete disruption of the marketplace of the rich getting richer and the and the poor being trodden because of that. Um but that can also be a revelation, telling me, you know, there there will be a point in which this whole thing is going to fall completely fall apart, and there will have to be something new coming out of it, right? So, um, all of those things can stand can stand together. And and again, I'm just going to hammer this a, another time. Those interpretations uh, are grounded in some way in the literal meaning right, of, of understanding what's actually happening in the text to then get to a place to understand how it might inform um, both the, this world and the world to come.
2: Right. then, right.
1: Okay, so let's talk some about, about the boundaries in all of this wild stuff. Um, so you mentioned you know, how, how it is that I can't just say, you know, oh, well, that's actually an a- allegory about my cat. Or something. <laughs> um so what and, and you mentioned augustine uh specifically, who really is our our best pal in this work, so I'll turn it back to you
0: well, I think the main boundary is if you're going to interpret it allegorically that the Old Testament, it needs to point to Christ all right um or at least if not point to Christ but point to the way of life in Christ or something along in lines I mean they <clears throat> I take it the uh, early church interpreters who were very fond of allegory uh, were using it for a specific purpose, uh, to point to Christ. Very much like, you know, uh, Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch, right? He uses the scripture in Isaiah to bring um, the, the, the Ethiopian to Christ.
2: <clears throat> but, yeah, you mentioned uh,
0: Augustine. In his uh, uh, in his book on Doctrine, he basically says, look, if you're interpreting Scripture, and even if you don't get the author's intent, or even if you're off a little bit, as long as it falls within the bounds of the rule of love, love of God and love of neighbor, it's good. In fact, at one point he says, and if you, if it, if the, Literal reading or the first face reading of the text doesn't fit the rule of love. Make it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, no, and that's where we end up with the Joshua, the genocide stories, things like that. I mean, that mm-hmm. can't be, you know, in some ways. So, yeah, you make it, but make you find it something else. Try again. Try, try again. Yeah. So that's yeah. So law of love, love of God, and love of neighbor have to be, if if something, or at least say that's a boundary. Also, that if it's sitting outside of that, your interpretation is outside of that, try again. You Something's gone awry. Um, and the other hand with Augustine is rule of faith, right? So, uh, so you're also—and this is really tied up in what you're saying about it has to point to Christ in some way. But um, rule of faith, meaning the other thing that—the other boundary we're not going to cross— Things that are going to disrupt in some way our understanding of who God is, of who Christ is, and I think specifically we use that as rule of faith or understand that as uh, the faith as uh, recounted in the Nicene Creed, right? So as being our our most basic boundaries there. Yes. So. Uh, Christ is fully human, fully divine. is you know, the only begotten. Uh, God created everything. All of these sorts of uh, really primary
2: yeah. um,
1: understanding of the Christian faith. So, so again, that's going to say when we're talking about the hand of God, no, that's not literal. So you move somewhere else because that was going to violate the rule of faith if we're talking about an actual physical hand thing. So things as right. simple as that, and then things as simple as more difficult. As those places where um, where Jesus might look incorporeal in in the New Testament, or where Jesus might seem to be, uh, you know, pure spirit, you know, those kinds of interpretations that might disregard uh, his human nature,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, that that's gonna the rule of faith is gonna put uh, boundaries there as well and send you back back to the drawing board to try again.
0: And they had a rule of faith that predated Nicaea, right? I believe Irenaeus gives a rule of faith. It's basically a creed, but it predates Nicaea. It's not the Apostles' Creed, but it has a lot of the same stuff. Am I wrong?
1: Oh yeah, sure. So yeah, there's 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 several uh pre-Nicene uh faith statements. I mean the first is just Jesus is Lord, Christ is Lord, period. Right. Which is a huge claim. Um so and then as you know trinitarian thought develops and then later as Christological thought develops then that's getting added into the mix um and then we might add to that um you know the faith that let's say we as presbyterians or uh, in the reformed tradition are are handed as well within our book of confessions within all of these documents that have in some way uh, different uh, expositions of our faith as well, Uh um, that that should be informing our understanding too. But um, yeah, so I didn't mean, um, thank you for correcting that, because I didn't mean to infer that the Nicene Creed was the only um, symbol there. But but in general, you know, it being our earliest ecumenical uh, symbol, so across Christianity, being an agreement that, um, if you're, if you're violating one of the principles in the Nicene Creed, then that's, that should come under some
2: scrutiny there broadly, historically, um, and ecumenically. Yeah. Let's, I'd like if we could
1: go back to the law of love a little bit, because that seems we've, we've mentioned some kind of simple ways about that too. like. Okay, genocide, bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we could That's not funny. Uh, but, but things that may seem evident to us. But uh, part of that work, too, is to understand when we're talking about love of neighbor, uh, is that we have historical and cultural and societal blind spots mm-hmm. there, uh, and that we might need the help of other tools and lenses uh, to help us focus there. Um, right. Because it may very well be that, you know, I come up with something that sounds really great for me, um, but because of my sort of heteronormative lens, uh, my first world lens, my uh, able body lens, et cetera, I'm am, am actually coming up with an interpretation that is uh, abusive and to other people, you know? Um, so you know, we have these lenses of, Reading scripture through uh, a post-colonial lens, right, which is also combating the way that scripture has been interpreted um, as as a tool that has given license, let's say, to the West to kind of take over and dominate places. Um, we're looking at um, you know a feminist lens, right, which is at least coming starting from a point of refuting. Uh, interpretations of scripture that are harmful to women, uh, and then coming back and saying how how does scripture how does scripture speak to the unique experiences mm-hmm. of women in the world and navigating um, their cultures, um, uh, their place within uh, society, etc. Um, and so those are places where you know, for me. Uh, some of that you start to you, reading, listening, listening, listening um becomes a little bit more ingrained, and you can see those things, but it's a that's a place where I really do read more you know I don't grab as much to some of the um sort of typical scholastic commentaries on mm-hmm. scripture when I'm looking at a passage, but I always want to check myself against like um does this Amy are? Jill Levine and stuff like that. Yeah, to make sure did I make a that I'm not into, let's say, an anti-Semitic place, that I'm not into um uh and, an anti-womanist reading or something like that. Um, that I'm not doing harm to uh, things that are blind spots to me because they're not my experiences.
0: Right. I mean, just think about the Exodus, which is a wonderful uh, story of liberation and uh, and also allegorical pointing to Christ and salvation and all that. But we can't forget, they go into another land and push everybody out and take their land. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. how was that used to justify, you know, uh, like you said, Western expansion, post-colonialism. So,
2: yeah, it's it's...
0: I think it's good to be humble enough to say there are ways of seeing this that I don't see, and um, it helps to listen to other voices.
1: Yeah, and that's coming back to in in that way in which I think we would assert that scripture is best understood or interpreted within community too. All right. Um, so it's and and that can be as simple y'all as when when we're actually talking about using the uh, rule of faith. We're talking about a faith community larger than us individually, right? So we're talking about the, the historic faith, the historic creeds. When um, we're talking about reading scripture in community. Then we're talking about listening to all of these other voices, too, and how that's going to enhance our experience. And we're all coming back, coming back, coming back to this very multivalent. Reading of Scripture, our work would be done if there was just one way to read these texts. Then that's it. Then there isn't a reason to read them again, to come back to them, to come back to them even with our own um, new experiences with. With the new questions that we might have from the world, it's a living—it's a living document, and we're living people. So there's there's more to be gleaned there than first glance in all of these cases.
0: Yeah, it's rich. You know, I never—it never fails. I can come to a passage that I feel like I know in and out, and still learn and, and, and still. So and there's just no bottom to it, and it—it's uh, unfortunate if we don't allow for a rich interpretation of scripture because I think it's an attempt to limit what God can do through it. Read the scriptures, search them. You're not gonna get to the bottom of them.